but I'd already said that I was going to run 36 kilometers. And so, you know, I wasn't really going to give myself that out. So I started the run, I think close to midnight. Um, I didn't finish until, you know, 3.30 in the morning and <laughs> all of the guards who were in the compound were just watching me thinking I was completely insane. Hi everyone, I'm Hetty Holmes and you're listening to Hacking Happiness with Dose, the podcast that explores what makes us feel good to get those happy hormones firing. Next up, we have human rights lawyer and ultramarathon runner Stephanie Chase, who I came across in the latest campaign from the North Face, which is all about women who never stop pushing boundaries. We talk about her career journey to becoming a lawyer and what ignited her passion for humanitarian work, how running began as a distraction from the stress of her law school studies but developed into a lifelong passion, her non-profit initiative Free to Run, which brings sports to women in conflict zones, as well as that time she decided to run 36 kilometres to celebrate her 36th birthday after a pretty boozy party at midnight. I hope you enjoy. So we uh, at DOSE, we uh, are an acronym for your happy hormones, as you've seen. So uh, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin and endorphins. And we like to kind of structure our questions around them. And uh, yeah, we, we like to kick off with dopamine, which we often associate with motivation and drive. It drives us towards our goals. And um, reading a little bit about you, you are someone with a lot of drive and a lot of motivation. You're a human rights lawyer, women's activist and an ultra marathon runner. Um, so I'd love to kick off by asking you to talk a little bit about your career journey um, to becoming a lawyer and what ignited your passion specifically for um, kind of human- humanitarian work. Sure. Um, I think I would have had a much easier time, actually, if I'd stayed working as a traditional lawyer. I started off uh, in corporate law, but it was never really part of the plan to to stay on that trajectory. Um, having grown up in Canada, I knew really that I was quite privileged. I'd grown up in a in a good home. I went to good schools. I had I had all of the opportunities um, that I needed to succeed. But I knew, of course, that much of the world's population, and particularly women, um, weren't weren't that lucky. And so I just, I felt like I had a responsibility to use the privileges that I had, the advantages that I had, um, and the skills that I had acquired for the, for the benefit of others. So uh, I did quite a lot of school. <laughs> I did three um, degrees in university, um, but really a lot of volunteer work, which is actually a privileged activity in and of itself. Um, because you need to be, you know, in a certain place to be able to financially support yourself to do this volunteer work. But I felt quite, um, again, quite lucky to, to have that opportunity. So I, you know, went and, um, taught Buddhist monks in, um, in Thailand. I taught them English. I went and did a volunteer, um, project working on wildlife biodiversity in Ecuador, um, I did um, some legal work in and out of East and West Africa, really just trying to build up my experience um, working in, in other countries and development contexts. But ultimately, my goal was to work in areas of conflict. And I, I'm not really sure why that is. I think it's because I'm, I'm attracted to situations that I don't understand fully um, and situations that, that frankly scare me. I think you learn a lot in trying to untangle complicated problems and working in war zones is really the the epitome of that and i think it's precisely when we do push outside ourselves outside of our comfort zones that we're able to grow and 
and able to affect change. You know, when things are at their worst, that's when there's the most potential for positive change. So that's ultimately how I wound up in the career that I'm doing. Which has taken you all over the world, which we'll get to. But also alongside this, um, your love of running was developing. I think you said that it was at law school that you really got into it um, to escape the stresses of studying. So how did that turn from, you know, just like maybe a couple of 10Ks to becoming an ultra marathon runner? How did that develop over time? Well, I I never did 10Ks. <laughs> I think 10Ks, 5Ks, you know, those are very painful events. I will run, you know, an, a, a hundred miler any day before I enter a 10K race. Um, but I signed up for my first marathon. Yeah, when I was in law school, really just as a tick the box exercise, um, something to force me to get away from my my books and my studying. But I immediately knew after I did the marathon that I wanted to try something bigger. I'd entered the marathon, you know, looking for this big challenge. And, you know, I wanted to hit the wall. Everyone had talked about hitting the wall and I wanted to hit it. And there there wasn't, there was no wall. And I felt like I'd missed out on an, on some kind of experience because of that. Um, and, you know, not to take away from the experience of running a marathon. Running a marathon is is challenging, of course. But I knew that if I wanted to do another one, I'd be able to finish. And I really had no interest in doing the marathons faster. I personally think it's crazy to train for a year to get your marathon time down by 10 minutes or five minutes. I have a whole lot of respect for people who do it. But, you know, I've always thought, what if you had a bad stomach that day? Then you're all of your training is, um, is out the window. So... I wanted to put myself up to something that I knew I would consider would be quite impossible. That would give me that challenge that I wanted. So I actually jumped straight from a marathon into a 250-kilometer self-supported foot race, an ultramarathon in Vietnam. And when I went into it, no one really knew if I could finish, including me. Um, And I discovered that those are the situations in which I actually tend to shine. When there's no expectations, when I'm almost expecting to fail, it's when there's no pressure. And and that's when I run best. And I ended up winning that one, my first ultra. And I was actually third overall amongst the men, um, although they didn't they didn't give an award for <laughs> for a third male to me. Yeah. Although that's what I wanted. <laughs> yes. Do you think you, if you had your time again, like in the like today, you would be given an award? It seems crazy that you were denied that. Well, I, you know, I think we're now more used to women um, competing along similar levels as men. We've seen um, other female athletes like Courtney DeWalter and and others. Um, winning outright some of these races. And and it's usually in the stupidly long um, distances. But back then, this is 2008, it wasn't really the norm. So, you know, people weren't really sure how to kind of deal with that. But yeah, since my first ultra, I think I've just, it's been a continuous process of trying to seek out new challenges um, and really force myself to think bigger and dive deeper into really uncomfortable spaces. And yeah, that's, that's where I, I tend to thrive. <laughs> Amazing. So this tenet leads us on to endorphins, which is really pain relief, isn't it? It's the pain relief that our body produces when we do something hard. Um, and I guess it's that nice uh, kind of like incentive for us to keep going and pushing ourselves. Um, but so uh, you've also been quoted saying like, I'm always searching for a new low so that I can find a new high. 
I'd love for you to discuss this in a little more detail. Yeah. I think the contrasts in running and the highs and the lows, that's what's really, in, that that's what interests me. It's the races, um, the races I'm most proud about aren't necessarily the ones that I've breezed through or even done particularly well in. If I come to a finish line completely intact, you know, my clothes are looking clean, I'm smiling, I, you know, <laughs> race across the finish line, it probably means I didn't push myself hard enough or pick a big enough challenge. And the best accomplishments I have, I think, are the ones that sit right at the edge of impossibility and that inevitably involve a fair amount of struggle. And I think you can really appreciate those high moments if they come after a really bad low. And there's strength in opening up to that kind of vulnerability and allowing yourself to face failure, to face doubt, to face, you know, real darkness and pulling through that is what actually gives you, gives you that high. Yeah. It's so cool. It's quite philosophical as well. Um, and I, I also read this article is just a font of knowledge for all of your amazing achievements um, that you, yeah, I think it was your birthday party and you had a few drinks with your friends and while they kind of went back home, you decided you'd run a marathon. And uh, yeah, is that something that you've always done? Like, so you, you know, you, you go out and then the next day you wake up with like all this energy and you want to burn it off by doing something like that? Or is it, is it just kind of a, a ultra marathon runner thing? Well, <laughs> and that was a particular... Um, it was a particular set of circumstances. I was living in Afghanistan at the time. Um, so I was living in Kabul and my birthday is on June 21st. So it falls on the summer solstice. So, um, the, a number of the Scandinavian countries celebrate, um, the summer solstice. And I'd gone to one of the embassies where I was expecting to have, you know, quite a team, um, a tame event, you know, maybe some dinner, and then I would be home maybe around 8 p.m. And I had already said on social media that I was going to run my age um, in kilometers. I think it was 36 at the time. It's not quite a marathon, but that I would run my age in kilometers uh, to raise money for um, the charity that I had founded. And so I'd already made this public commitment. And when I got to the embassy, it turns out that they celebrate the summer solstice <laughs> quite strongly, robustly. And, and I, I had a number of drinks. And when I got home, it wasn't until almost midnight, which was actually our, our curfew. But I'd already said that I was going to run 36 kilometers. And so, you know, I wasn't really going to give myself that out. So I started the run, I think close to midnight. Um, I didn't finish until, you know, 3.30 in the morning. And all of the guards who were in the compound were just watching me thinking I was completely insane. Um, but yeah, I, I think it kind of follows my approach to running. You know, I'm not too strict with my training. I'm not too hard on myself with, with the actual goals that I set out. Um, and I just roll with the punches, even if it's punches that I've kind of inflicted on, on myself. I think it's important to be flexible and, and yeah, to enjoy it. It was great. I had a, I had a great time. It was a, it was a really cool birthday. <laughs> no. Awesome. We'll talk about commitment. Um, so can you talk about some of your biggest achievements um, that have cemented you in the trail running world? Um, so you've done like 100 milers, like, as you've said, but are there any that really stand out to you? Yeah, my, I think my progression in ultra running has been interesting. You know, I, I started off very early on with some pretty big wins. You know, as I said, I, I won my first multi-day race um, and then 
I went into my first 100 miler and won that. And it was a pretty big 100 miler in the States. And, you know, I think if I hadn't been so career focused and I decided to just, you know, focus on running, maybe that would have continued. But running for me has always been a balance to my work. And I, I continue to have um, success mainly in multi-day races. So um, I won another 250K race in Vietnam, in Nepal, also in the Swedish Arctic, uh, which was on snowshoes, which is interesting. But now I think I tend to get my best results um, and get on the podium in, re- in races that are really at the more extreme end of the, the single stage or nonstop um, endurance runs. So before COVID in 2019, I got second place female at Ronda Del Sims, which is a 100-mile race in Andorra that has about 30% more climb, more elevation than UTMB, than the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc. Uh, so it's it's quite tough. Um, and then the, one of the main races that I love to do is Tour de Géant, which is a 200-mile or 330-kilometer nonstop race uh, through Aosta Valley in Italy. And it involves basically crossing 25 mountain peaks. And I've gotten one second and two-fourths in, in that race. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, while I'm I'm happy with, the successes I get, it's always a surprise. <laughs> I think it's always a surprise to me if I make it on the podium because it's never really my my goal. And honestly, I think part of the success that I have is because the races that I enter, the really extreme ones, tend to have a very low percentage of women. And I would really be much happier if I never made it on the podium again, simply because there were enough other competitive women who were there to beat me. And and that's, I think, where we need to get to. Mm. Um, and you've got a, a non-profit, haven't you, that you set up called Free to Run, which brings sport to women in conflict zones. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, Free to Run is a charity that I founded in 2014. And we aim to support female leaders in areas of conflict through outdoor sports and adventure. And we're currently operating in Afghanistan and Iraq, where I'm going in a couple of weeks. Um, but it's really about so much more than running. We use running in sports to help women and girls learn skills like communication, conflict resolution, goal setting, even assertiveness, which they can then use in their own lives to become leaders in their communities. And our work allows women and girls to safely and boldly reclaim public space to become visible in countries and areas where they've suffered severe discrimination. And that act of of becoming visible is what changes the views in society of the roles that women can and should be playing. And in the areas where we work, you know, women are often unable to go uh, outside freely because of this um, systemic discrimination. And I think in the past, this might have been difficult for others in Europe or the UK or the US to really understand. But what's unique about this time now is that following COVID and following all of the lockdowns, we have all experienced a restriction on our freedom in some way. And I think we can all appreciate now so much more how critical it is to be able to move in the outdoors and the wide ranging benefits that you know we can get um, to ourselves and, and within our communities. Mm. That's super inspiring. 
Um, so getting to kind of serotonin, which is often linked with mental health. Uh, there's a lot of people that suffer from depression, don't create enough of it. It's often linked as well with um, you know, anxiety, sleep. Um, so all this ultramarathon running must be quite stressful on the body. And being a, a human rights lawyer must be quite stressful too. So how, how do these high flying things like affect your mood and anxiety levels and your sleep? For me, running and ultra running is absolutely essential to help me deal with um, all of the stress that I have from work, particularly when I'm working in in areas of conflict. And it's funny, you know, while um, you've said and while I think a lot of people think of ultra running as energy draining and as being a stress on the body, it's the tool that gives me strength. It's what recharges me. And I really wouldn't be able to do the work that I do, I think, without the running. Where I said, when my legs are moving, my mind becomes still. And that's, I can actually visualize the stress coming out of my body, coming out of the top of my head and just littering the trail behind me, like little black dots of stress. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've always found a, a lot of the issues that come at me into work, they're almost too overwhelming to deal with sitting at a desk. You have to be able to work through them while you're moving out on the trail. But, you know, that being said, um, sometimes the stress level gets too high at work and I really need to recognize when those moments happen and give my body and my mind a bit of a break before I can even attempt to go running on a mountain. There's been a number of times when I've come out of Afghanistan or I've come out of Gaza or other areas and the first thing I want to do is go for a run when when I'm on a, a week break but my heart rate will be so high that I just have to realize that what I probably need is sleep <laughs> and, you know, to be very conscious of the mental stress um, and the impact that that has on my body in very tangible and, and physical ways. And to know when running will actually set me further back rather than, than bring me up. And, and what about nutrition as well? Cause you must have a very specific kind of diet when you're doing these massive distances. And so what do you have to eat to maintain those energy levels? I actually don't have a specific diet and I, I purposely don't um, because in an ultra, so many things will go wrong. You know, maybe you won't meet up with your drop bag or maybe a certain checkpoint won't have the food you need. And if you're used to having something very specific, then you can't, again, roll with the punches as much as possible. And I think it also comes from the kind of lifestyle I live. I I don't get a lot of choice about what I can eat sometimes simply because of the country I'm working in. When I was in South Sudan a few years ago, I was living in a tent and I got to eat rice and beans. And, and that was it. And, you know, in the mornings I could choose to have a like a chapati or something else, but what I really missed was yogurt. So I would make this paste <laughs> out of dehydrated milk and sugar, which is really not very healthy at all. But mentally, it, it felt like I was eating yogurt. So, so that that's what I was eating. Um, but when I do have a choice, when I'm living, you know, in quote unquote normal places, um, I try to eat healthy. I eat you know fish and vegetables, and I could eat my body weight in in sushi. Um, but I do enjoy unhealthy treats. When I started running, you know, 13 years ago, I think I was um, too strict about my diet. I, I was too restrictive. And I think a lot of women also fall into this. And that led to a lot of injuries. It led to a lot of stress fractures. And 
you know, now I just, I give myself that, that freedom. If I'm craving something unhealthy, I'm not going to have it every day, but I'll, I'll let myself have it. Um, when I'm racing, it's, yeah, it's a bit different. I try to eat real food rather than gels or supplements, actually, as when you're running for a day or two or more, you really need substance. So I'll have uh, tomato, avocado, and cheese sandwiches are quite good. Uh, pizza. I'll often try to get my crew to bring me pizza on the trail or sometimes McDonald's. Um, but really, I'll just, whatever my body's craving. I've had, you know, cans of whipped cream before. I've, you know, drunk cups of olive oil. Um, but my regular go-to, if I'm just going out for a shorter run, is a bag of potato chips. That's cool. It's good. Yeah, it's reassuring to know that you just don't live on, you know, a very controlled diet. Like I've, I've interviewed other kind of uh, marathon runners who are so strict, but I think, like you say, it's what whatever you need, right, to keep you going and to be flexible. And I think that really allows me to to do better in races than than others because that I don't freak out if if I don't have the specific thing that you know I thought I was going to have then fine. You just, you eat what's there or you eat what's possible. I mean, when I was drinking olive oil, <laughs> I certainly hadn't expected to do that in a race, but I couldn't, I literally couldn't chew anything without feeling nauseous. So I just had to take whatever would have in the most bang for your buck, the the most amount of calories in a short amount of time. And it, and it worked. So yeah, it might not be the, it might not be the best approach. It might not work for everyone, but for me, it's actually a conscious choice not to be too strict or too restrictive. So getting on to our, our last hormone, oxytocin, which is uh, it's kind of in the limelight right now because of lockdown and people aren't getting enough uh, social contact with their loved ones. Um, hopefully they will be getting more of that now that restrictions are easing. Um, I was interviewing a guy a couple of weeks ago. He's called the Breath Guy, a meditation uh, what, breathing coach. And he said, we need, we need seven hugs a day to get the right amount of oxytocin. <laughs> but someone like you who lives quite a nomadic existence, like when we're talking the real world before COVID, um, how was that? Because you obviously found your tribe through running, through, through ultra running, but um, you're never really in one place, are you? So what is that like for your loved ones and your, your friends and your family? Yeah, I think, you know, I've always tried to keep in touch with with my loved ones, you know, obviously remotely. Um, but it was setting up a home base in, in Chamonix, in the middle of the mountains, uh, which many see as, you know, the trail running Mecca. It was setting up a home here just to know that I would have a base to come back to, no matter, you know, if I had to go back to a war zone or... Um, and take a job uh, anywhere else in the world that I would have one place that I could come back to um, that really represented me and everything I loved, which is running and, and mountains. And I can always come back here to recharge, even if it's um, not as much as I want to. But, you know, when runners come and descend on this town in August for the Ultra Trail du Mont Blanc every year, it feels like a giant family reunion. And it really doesn't matter if it's been a month or 12 months. It, it's like no time has passed at all. So, yeah, having having a permanent home here um, is a key part to allowing me to be nomadic, I, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. And how's that changed during lockdown? Have you you obviously haven't been able to travel as much. Um, so what's it been like kind of for your work and I guess your kind of your friends relationships and not being able to have that freedom to travel so much? 
Yeah, I think I am probably traveling more than some just because because of what I do. Yeah. Um, but certainly way less than, than I used to. I used to be on a plane probably every four to six weeks. So this has been quite a big change. Um, but because of this work, because I'm used to, to, to being away from home, I'm quite accustomed to working in places away from family and friends. So in many ways, I was really trained for <laughs> unexpectedly. I was trained for a pandemic. I was trained for lockdowns. Um, I think, I think what's been hard um, is I've struggled to maintain some relationships with people that I think have had a more relaxed approach to COVID-19 and to community safety than than I have. Um, as part of my work, I'm always trying to think about other people. And during COVID, we have to. We have to think about other people on that. We've got a responsibility to keep others safe. And this, of course, requires personal sacrifice. And mm. so I think that's where some of my relationships have have suffered a bit because I, I've really struggled um, when people aren't following the rules or um, are doing things that I that I think just really aren't aren't fair. I've had to kind of pull back from that a bit. But yeah, I miss I miss being able to hug friends and family. That's the one thing I really you know miss when I'm in places like Afghanistan or, or Gaza is not having phys- physical contact. You know, even shaking hands you can't do with with people and being able to hug or actually have that tangible contact with people is is really important. And I would cope when I was in Afghanistan by having there was a massage therapist in in the compound and I would get a massage every week just to have some kind of physical contact. But you know, you can't even do that in in some places in in lockdown. So it's I think it's really hard. I I appreciate the the burden um, that this has had on a lot of people and especially people who, who haven't, you know, had to do this before, who haven't had to face, you know, these kinds of restrictions before. I think we're all, we're all waiting until we can, we can have face-to-face contact again and, and get on the other side of this. Yeah, absolutely. And so what is in the pipeline for you? Have you got any other huge feats of endurance lined up? Yeah, I, you know, last year I didn't race at all. All of my races were canceled. And, you know, I really said that I, I didn't want, I knew that there were some races going, but I, I didn't want to try to squeeze in a race with a whole bunch of COVID-19 measures because a big part of a race for me is sweating and laughing and sometimes vomiting accidentally, but having, you know, being able to hug volunteers and help other runners and and I want to get back to racing when we can do that. And I'm, I'm hoping we can by this fall. But I'm signed up for uh, basically the, the upgrade on Tour de Géant, that 330-kilometer race I was talking about. There's a 450-kilometer version uh, this year. So and that's all nonstop. Um, and you have to navigate yourself. The course isn't marked. And it involves 32,000 meters of climb. So I'm super excited about doing that. It'll be in September. So my year will be trying to build up to that race. And on uh, the charity side with Free to Run, I'm going in two weeks to Iraq to reconnect with our team there. And then this summer in July and August, I'll be going back to Afghanistan where I'll do an expedition with the women and girls with Free to Run in Afghanistan in the Wakhan Corridor which is a really remote part of Afghanistan with beautiful mountains. Uh, we'll be hiking up above 4,000 meters uh, for a couple of weeks. So that'll be really 
really great physical and mental training for um, Tour de Glacier the next month. Oh, Stephanie, you're such an inspiration. Like you say, it's nonstop, but amazing what you're doing, um, really changing people's lives and just are a huge inspiration to many, I'm sure, listening to this as well. So thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to record with you. And yeah, thank you. Well, thank you. thanks to you. <laughs> If you have any questions about today's podcast, please drop us a line at hello at whateveryourdose.com.